This is the Classical Ideas Podcast. Welcome to the Classical Ideas Podcast. As you know, the world works in mysterious ways and gives us the good fortune of running into someone who will bring some intrigue, wisdom, and opportunity to our lives. All we need to do is be awake for such moments. Paying attention to these moments opens doors to stories. In search of caffeine one October morning, I walked through the student center of the University of Missouri moments before a podcast interview. A book fair was set up, and I noticed two books titled The Accidental Buddhist and The Mindful Writer. I had never heard of either of these titles. As I scanned the back covers, the woman at the checkout counter said, Um, the author of those books is right there, and pointed about 50 feet away where a man sat at a high table near a fireplace in the ample sunshine of the bright room. I approached him. He introduced himself as Dinty W. Moore, professor of nonfiction writing at Ohio University. We discussed Zen, Thich Nhat Hanh, a little bit about community sanghas. He signed my books, I shook his hand, and promised myself to email him later that day. A promise I kept. A fortuitous moment opened a door to ask someone the stories of their life. If this podcast is about anything, it is about stories. This episode is the story of me going on the hunt for a cup of coffee and stumbling upon a writing workshop where an Ohioan professor of nonfiction writing, who happens to sometimes write books about Buddhism, sat at that exact moment. I could have walked out then and there and paid no mind to it, but I'm so glad I paid additional attention that day. The books I walked away with, The Accidental Buddhist, published in 1997, and The Mindful Writer, published in 2016, were both at times beautiful, inspirational, hilarious, awkward, and descriptive of Americans seeking to find something within the 2,500-year-old tradition of Buddhism and struggling to just sit down and shut up. Personally, I've done some fairly regular secular meditation practice in an effort to come to terms with my own personal baggage. I liken my meditation practice to getting repeatedly punched in the face in complete stillness and not ducking when the second, third, fourth, fifth punches land. Meditation is no easy act. Failure is imminent, and then failure passes, and then failure occurs again, and then failure passes. Dinty's failure on the page in his books when describing his meditation practice is me as well. His failures in meditation are likely yours, too, if you know the practice and have tried it. I learned a lot in this conversation from Dinty, a 30-year practitioner of various Buddhist practices, but who still struggles to enact the practices in his day-to-day life. He tells the every-person story of Buddhism in America with great candor, humor, and humility. In that regard, his book stands out to me for even someone with no interest in practicing Buddhism themselves, but who has a curiosity to know a tad more about a major religion in the world, followed by some 500 million people worldwide. I had a blast preparing for this conversation with Dinty's excellent books. I heartily recommend both. If you have a passing interest in Buddhism, check out The Accidental Buddhist. If you have an interest in writing, check out The Mindful Writer. 
So my guest today is Dinty W. Moore. Dinty W. Moore is author of seven books and many essays and stories. He is a professor of nonfiction writing at Ohio University, the editor of Brevity Magazine, and he lives in Athens, Ohio, where he grows heirloom tomatoes and edible dandelions. Pay attention, people, to fortuitously opened doors. The stories are waiting to be told. Without further delay, I bring you Dinty W. Moore. Welcome to the Classical Ideas Podcast. I'm here today with Dinty Moore, author of The Accidental Buddhist and The Mindful Writer, among others. Um, Dinty, thank you for coming on the Classical Ideas Podcast. Thank you. So I'm curious if you can uh, talk a little bit about the day that we met. Do you remember anything about that? Uh, Let's see. I was in Columbia, Missouri. The Show Me Writers Conference was happening at the university there. Um. I think I don't know that you were at the conference. I think you were just wandering through the student union and saw the the bookstore they'd set up and noticed two of my books that had to do with Buddhist themes. And next thing you knew, you tracked me down at a table and we were talking. Yeah, it was really funny. I was reading the titles of the books and I immediately latched onto them and I was going to buy them anyway. And then a young woman at the checkout counter said, well, that's him right there. And I just basically marched <laughs> marched on over to you. Um, and what's really funny is I was on my way to another podcast interview with Dennis Kelly to talk about American indigenous religions. And I told you all that and you're like, oh, that sounds good. So I left the student union that day, like completely uh, encouraged to reach out to you again. So I'm really grateful to you for uh, accepting my invitation to come back on and talk to me. Happy to do it. So if you could go ahead and introduce yourself a little bit, maybe talk about your job, uh, maybe talk about what you're known for within the spiritual world, that'd be great. Um, well, I'm a, I'm a writer. I've written a lot of books. Uh, two and a half of them uh, relate directly to the, my Buddhist practice and my, my thinking about Buddhism. Um, I write a lot about Catholicism, too, but most of that is... Uh, my negative feelings, having gone through 12 years of Catholic school. Uh, I also teach writing at, at at Ohio University and at various writers' conferences, like the Show Me Writers' Conference where I met you. Um, how am I known in the spiritual world? I don't know that I am. I mean, I've written these books, so people read them. But I'm not a teacher. I'm not a spiritual teacher. I'm not a, I'm not an, a, a, a monk. I'm not particularly... Um, good person to come to if you want to, you know, pursue Buddhism because I'm just a student of Buddhism myself. Awesome. I love that, um, that you are just an ordinary practitioner also that you, and you've done a lot of different things, which we'll talk about from accidental Buddhist among others. Um, so one of the things that I've been doing since you and I met at that writer's conference in Columbia, Missouri is that I have read The Mindful Writer and The Accidental Buddhist all the way through, and I really enjoyed them. And so you talk, um, a few of my previous episodes, I talked about Zen, and we discussed koans, and your book, The Mindful Writer, starts off with a dedication to, quote, those struggling with the arduous but magnificent koan of the written word. So I'm curious if you can talk about why writing as koan inspires you. 
Um, I think, I mean, my view of writing, and I'm not the only uh, writer who who would say this to you, is that you know if you're if you're writing literary works, and literary is kind of a highfalutin word, but you know the difference between um, instruction manuals and and you know the work that adults read to, to try to understand their lives. If you're writing the the works, the type of work, whether it's poetry, prose, fiction, or nonfiction, that you know the serious readers read because they're trying to understand life and their lives and they like getting lost in a good story. What drives that kind of writing is is the unanswerable questions. You know, the things that the things that we lay awake at night wondering about, whether it's, you know, religion, how did we get here, or whether it's just our lives, our love lives, our families, why you know, why good people try really hard to connect and and somehow you know, marriages fail or children go astray or friends end up not being friends. It's all those things that, you know, that there is no easy answer to, but you can spend your whole life thinking about. That's what writing is about. Um, and that's, to me, the koan of the, of the written word. Yeah, it's like that magnificent uh, path down the third way, the unexpected way, the irrational or the thing that doesn't immediately appear um, simple with logic, right? Yeah, I mean, human beings are living contradictions. Everybody I know um, doesn't really make sense, except once you accept the fact that, you know, we're not we're not black and white, easy to classify. Um, well, I'll just leave it at that. It's you know, it's that, that human beings are contradictions, and life ends up being you know a confusing contradiction of its own, and we just try our best. Yeah, the the pain and suffering of just being alive on a day-to-day basis is so universal and so real. And the second I read that introduction to the book, um I was like, "Oh, great. He's going to he's written this book for me. It's so fantastic that now I have this little tool to help me out." So I appreciated that cuz it felt really personal. So Great. Yeah. So you write extensively about the difficulty of sitting in the accidental Buddhist, which, uh, trust me, I I understand. Um, Whenever I was watching you on the page in the accidental Buddhist struggle in your sitting, I felt it. Um, And then in Mindful Rider, you then say that you discover significant moments in your everyday life by sitting, by listening, with which I also agree. I realized I was really fidgety right before this interview, so I'm sitting in my chair in my office right now, and I just kind of closed my eyes and told myself, breathing in, I know that I am breathing in. And within five minutes, I was completely calm. But what have you discovered recently about the everyday in your own sitting practice? Um, I've discovered that as much as I wish I could sit for half an hour every day, 20 seconds... <laughs> Sometimes, yeah, you know, like before, uh, before some, before I go in to talk to someone in their office, or before, you know, another student comes in to talk to me in my office. Um, Twenty seconds can make a difference. I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to set everybody's, you know, goals that low. Certainly, there's much more to be learned from, you know, a, a, a more disciplined practice. But just, just the settling of the mind that could happen in ten or twenty seconds. As opposed to the you know the human the human tendency to just race from one thing to another um, that I I think has gotten worse 
you know, as, as our as our life gets more automated. Um, so that so yeah, I mean the the, the importance of, of centering the mind, whether you call that you know meditation uh, or not, because it only only takes twenty seconds, uh, is powerful. That's you know it's another use of of what happens in a longer sitting. How long have you been practicing now? Uh, I've been practicing badly <laughs> since, uh, oh, I think it's been 30 years, 25 to 30 years. Um, at the end of Accidental Buddhist, I, I love that you just said badly, um, because I think that a lot of people could resonate with that. Um, and at, at the end of the Accidental Buddhist, you say, what kind of Buddhist am I, a lousy one? Are you still a lousy Buddhist? Yeah, I mean, I say that with my tongue in my cheek. Absolutely. I'm, I'm not, I'm not real... I'm not, you know, I haven't, I haven't, I have a job. I have a very busy job and I have my writing, you know, career and, and that on top of it, I spend too much time on the internet many days. Um, I haven't come even close to the person I thought, you know, I wanted to become when I first discovered the power of Buddhist thought. A lot of what's what's important to me about Buddhism is, is sort of the philosophy behind it and the power of of sitting and the power of compassion. Like, like many people, I started to discover those and said, you know, said in my mind, this is going to change my life. Well, it did, but in, in ways far less dramatic than I imagined. You know, I'm not, I'm not an entirely chill individual who's aware and centered, you know, 24 hours a day. I'm just still a mess, but I've found a way to catch myself uh, that I didn't have before. You mentioned a lot, um, all those things just now. So you've been practicing for 25 or 30 years, and you still see the difficulty in it every single day. How do you feel about the like the mindfulness um, craze that's like taken over America in the last 20 years? Um, it doesn't. It, well, <laughs> my book is entitled "The Mindful Writer," so I better, I better not be bothered by it. I'm. I keep reading people who reading articles or or. Facebook posts or, or or notes to various magazines from people who are kind of upset by how the mindfulness movement has become secularized or or sim- oversimplified or you know it's it's gone from a, a spiritual practice to in some cases a commodity. Uh, you know I read those things and I'm I'm sympathetic to what people are saying, but it's not bad. You know it's like mindfulness even if you do it outside of a Buddhist. Um, framework, even if you do it somewhat simplistically, it's still a good thing. So um, I'm happy. I'm happy to see mindfulness, whether it's secular mindfulness or even, for that matter, you know, commercial mindfulness. You know, the books and tapes and other things that are, you know, circulating rather widely in our culture now. I'm actually glad to see those because I think you know it's just good for people to be aware that they're not aware, you know, to be aware that there is something other than mindlessness or mindless racing from thing to thing. So I, I like mindfulness in the deepest uh, spiritual realm. And I also think it's, it's okay that people are doing it and, you know, in, in other more uh, secular ways, because, if people's minds and lives are healthier around me, then that's you know good for me too and good for everybody else. So speaking of aware versus unaware, 
you said that you ignored the world for 30 years until you began to sit. So why is it so hard if we know the benefits of sitting, yet we continue to fail to sit? Why do you think this is so? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, well, I suppose it's built into the human animal somehow. I mean, I, and I, I learned in another book that I wrote um, about why why we're superstitious as people and it's sort of good and this is a really simple explanation but you know and when we were when um, there's a very simple explanation but just let me just, just ride with me a minute sure and when we were our, when we were our earliest human humans or whatever it is whenever we well this is true of apes too but let's just pretend it's the moment that that we stopped being apes and became humans which i don't even know if that <laughs> makes sense to me uh, but as we evolved, as sure. we evolved as creatures, <laughs> uh, we reached a point, or maybe we always had this point. I'm going to start this story over. That's fine. You know, we, we were creatures, and for a while there, we were creatures living, you know, out there in the wild, surrounded by wild beasts. You know, I'm talking tens of thousands of years ago, what cartoons like to call cavemen, but that's a silly picture, too. Um, <laughs> so what I learned is, if you look behind a tree or in a bush and you see something that may or may not be a tiger, if you panic and run, you're, the chances of you living to see another day are better than if you just stand around and, and, and wait to see if it really is a tiger. You know, so the alternative is that could be a tiger, but maybe it's just a funny way that the light is hitting the leaves. <laughs> Let me walk up a little closer to that bush and see what it really is. Well, if it actually turns out to actually be an animal that wants to uh, attack and kill you, a hungry tiger, um, your willingness to stand around and sort of puzzle out. What, what is that in the bush? Is it a tiger or just the way the sun is hitting the leaves? It's going to kill you. Um, so I mean, there's very so there's there's a evolutionary advantage to being nervous and paranoid and anxious, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I think we're probably hardwired uh, to be nervous and paranoid and anxious in certain ways uh, because because of evolution and because it is a survival mechanism. Uh, I don't know what's a, I don't know that it's a survival mechanism that serves us very well in the modern world. Uh, I know that in many cases it's not. So perhaps the reason we have such trouble being our best Buddhist selves, our best meditative selves, our most mindful and, and clear-headed selves is that we're fighting some sort of chemical process that is natural to our brain. And when we drive... Does that make any sense? Absolutely. Any sense? Yeah, oh, and, and like when we drive down the highway, you know, that, that survival instinct it comes out the worst in us or you know what I mean? Or when things are going yeah. wrong at work or when you have like 15 tasks ahead of you at work, that survival instinct seems to come out the worst in us. I know it doesn't me, you know, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a teacher yeah. too. So I understand the difficulty of what you said earlier about your busy job. Like I feel like I'm in a hurry 100% of the time. Yeah. And I, and I want to do my job well. Exactly. You know? So it's like, if I tell my students, eh, you know, life is short. <laughs> yeah. We, you know, there is no, there is no me. Right. You know, everything is just a, a, an amorphous universe. So I'm not going to teach tomorrow. 
that doesn't that that sounds good, but it's not. It, it, I'm not that person either. Absolutely. Um. So in your in your book, The Mindful Rider, which um I really like, you talked about how um writing matters, and you encouraged your students to figure out moments when they t- when they say to themselves, "What I'm doing matters." So when you sit. Do you realize ways that your own writing, teaching, personal life matter? So, like, what is a moment you've recently had where you tell yourself, this really matters right now? Um, I, I, I will go back to the teaching part of it. You know, that there's, there's going through the, the um, motions of meeting with your students to discuss, you know, the latest assignment whatever that is. And then there's sort of being present. And I sort of I just went through a series of meetings with all of my students this current semester. And I, I, I left lots of time. I mean, some of the meetings only lasted 10 minutes, but I left 45 minutes, you know, for each one. And sometimes the students, you know, and I talked over the next assignment and then I asked them what they're doing for the holidays. And then we started, and I got to know them as human beings in ways that Certainly wasn't happening in the classroom, um, and that's that's that that that's there's some there's, there's some mindfulness there um, that that led me to that that idea that I that I wanted to spend more time with my students and talk to them about things other than you know what we're learning in the classroom. And I think that they walk away with a totally different picture of you then as well, most likely, wouldn't you say? I'm sorry, pardon, pardon me? Wouldn't you think that they... <laughs> I about mindfulness. I spaced out a moment there. That's hilarious. Yeah. So yeah. do you think that they walk away with a different picture of you then as well in that moment? Um, I hope so. I don't know. I mean, me as in it's all about me, but it certainly, I think... I mean, this would be true of about, about any profession. It's not unique to teaching. Um, it's good for people to realize... There's a human being on the other side of the classroom. Sometimes I think students don't realize their teachers are human beings. They're just assignment givers. You know, I think it's good when we realize there's a human being behind the police officer's uniform. It's good when we realize there's a human being who's ringing up our groceries at the grocery store, not just not just somebody who slides things, you know, along. Uh, and you know, the barcode reader. Um, I, you know, I think. I think all those human human interactions where we actually connect as human beings, you know, that's karma to me. That adds that adds good karma to the world. That just reminded me of an article that I read in Tricycle um, with actually a previous guest on this podcast, Sato Ray Ronsi. He's a professor in the English department at the University of Missouri. He's a poet, and he's also a Rinzai Zen monk. And he wrote a piece called The Examined Life that I think that you would really love about his dual role as a monk and as a professor and how those two identities can um, come out in his behavior in the classroom as a teacher. And it was an absolutely beautiful piece of writing and it really just speaks to, um, you know, how, how people see us. So some people see us as yeah. a father, some people see us as a teacher, some people see us as a student, some people see us as a son, and how all those roles can look different based on who's looking at us in that moment. Yeah, and, and I can remember 
trying to be a little more present for my, you know, wife and daughter 25 years ago when, when all this sitting stuff began. And I realized, you know, that I'd, sometimes I just go through the motions. This is what a father says. This is what a father does. This is how a father acts. This is how, and my daughter was very, very, very young at that time. You know, this is how a father makes his kid laugh. This is how a father gets food, you know, and, and, and and I was, you know, it's like we have these ideas in our head about how things are supposed to happen, and we don't even stop and think sometimes. So nowadays, I do a lot of time, you know, thinking: Am I really being an effective teacher? Mm-hmm. Or am I doing what I think I'm supposed to do? And, and I'm wasting everybody's time. And I can remember having to sort of think through some of that about being a dad. Um, I mean, I still do, but my daughter's uh, much, much, much very much grown up and living out of the house and living in another, another city. So it's not the sort of the day to day interaction, but you know, that, but any human interaction that we have, there's going through the motions of either just by not paying attention or, you know, this is the way you're supposed to talk to the person, you know, at the grocery store versus, well, maybe, maybe you don't have to have that, that screen and that, you know, that, that distance. Maybe you can actually, notice them and and say something that makes them notice you. So I want you to go down a hypothetical scenario with me here for a second. Imagine that I am you 25 years ago. Uh Uh-huh. I have a four-year-old daughter right now. So imagine that you are talking to yourself when your daughter was four at this point in your life. And you're talking to the you of when your daughter was four. What would you say to yourself in that moment you have to work much harder to listen to what's really behind the words and what's not being said especially as she gets older and it's more difficult for her to say things to you Um, I'm a person who doesn't like to hear the bad news so you know if my daughter was happy I would hear that and if my daughter was perhaps and not necessarily at four, but your daughter's going to get older and it gets more complicated. Um, you know, as my daughter got older and it got more complicated, I remained happy to hear the good news, but I didn't always listen hard enough to, you know, to see what she was struggling with. And I could have done a much better job. Thank you. I'll, I'll remember that. So your professional and spiritual life, to me, I've only read two of your many books, but it seems to me that your professional and your spiritual life are like almost completely intertwined. Um, can you envision one without the other? Um, I think you're giving me too much credit, but I, I appreciate the thought. Um, you know, we're talking today about ways that I bring mindfulness or, or, or compassion to my teaching. And because we're talking about it, I'm giving you examples, but I'm sure there are days, weeks, God forbid, months that I, I stumble along and don't do a very good job. Uh, but anyway, so they're the fully intertwined. Maybe not. Maybe I'm still, like like I always said, I'm always, I'm just trying to do better. I'm trying to intertwine them a little bit better next year than I did this past year. Uh, so now, now that I've got my long caveat out of the way. <laughs> um, yeah, I, can, I mean, I can imagine, but sometimes I imagine my spiritual life without my my busy, 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 you know, I'm a writer, I'm a teacher, I travel, I'm a public speaker, I edit a magazine. Sometimes I imagine my spiritual life if I weren't so busy with all of these things. And, you know, what I imagine is, is perhaps a 
perhaps a fantasy daydream where I'm, you know, have time to just, you know, walk, walk along and appreciate the, the air and the sun and the sound of the birds um, more than I do. I mean, I, you know, I do that sometimes, but you know how it is. You don't do it nearly as much as you should. Um, I, you know, I imagine I spend more time out in nature. Uh, so I can easily imagine my spiritual life without my professional life. Um, although I don't know if I'm, what I'm imagining is this real or fantasy. Um, my professional life without my spiritual life, I think, I think it would be much less. I don't think I'd be as good at it as a. a in all my human interactions, as an editor, as a teacher, as a as a visiting writer, um, I don't think I'd be nearly as effective if I didn't have the things that I've learned from my Buddhist practice. You know, to bring to the table. Um, I don't think it would be as fulfilling for me if I didn't have those things. I think it would be. I, I, I never want to become that person who hates their job. And I don't hate my job. I love my job. And I certainly don't want to be that person who has a really good job. I have a really good job. Who has great comforts and safety in the world. I have great comfort and safety in the world. Um, you know, I have health insurance. I have a regular salary, all that. I never want to be the person who has all of that going and hates and complains about it all the time. And I know people, way too many people that I work with, maybe you do too, who, you know, they have a job, they have a steady paycheck, they have health insurance, they have a house, they have relative health, and all they do is complain about, you know, what a, what a crappy, crappy life they're living. Um, I'm, I'm rambling a bit here, but I think what I'm trying to say is I think my spiritual life allows me to catch myself and realize, you know, yeah. I have bad days, you know, my knees hurt, you know, Absolutely. there's a few people I, the few people I work with who are unpleasant, but man, I'm lucky. You know, I'm lucky. And that's mindfulness okay. as well, you know? Yeah. 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 So let's talk about failure for a second, <laughs> which okay. in the writing, you know, I, I've dabbled in a little bit of creative writing here and there. And every moment that I am trying to put words on paper, it's almost as if I am just telling myself nonstop how terrible this is. This is so bad, so bad, so bad. No one would ever want to look at this. So if people feel like they're failing, you say in The Mindful Rider that sitting with the forces of failure is important. You likely see many students in your job who are struggling with such moments. So when you see people who are battling with these forces of failure, what do you say to them? Um, well, I'm speaking now as a writing teacher. Mm -hmm. Which I am, you know. I, I pointed up. I started out by saying I'm not a spiritual teacher or a monk or a religious authority. I am a writing teacher, and I've spent many years doing that, and I know a fair bit about it. Um, those voices in your head that are telling you this is a lousy first draft. These are trite thoughts. I, these are really flat, uninteresting sentences. Everybody has those voices. You know, I've published many books. Um, I have those voices. Uh, it's just kind of normal. Um, you have to learn to sort of shut them off. What I, you know, the, the, what I like to say is, you know, I talk back to them. I'm writing. I'm beginning a writing project, writing an early draft of something, and these voices come in saying, "Yeah, this is just a waste of time. This is stupid. It's not going anywhere. These sentences are flat." And I just go, "Yeah, I know, I know, um, but I'm going to keep going anyway." You know, you just have to shrug and 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 take the power away from those voices. Um, you know. Bad first drafts are 
where kind of crappy second drafts come from, and that leads to a third draft where you start to get a kind of an idea of what it is you want to do, and then you know four or five, six drafts later, you're, you're, you've got an idea that makes sense. You're writing about it. You're suddenly caring about it, and, and, you have, and you're fixing the sentences that seemed rather flat and boring and making them a little more vivid. If that's just a normal part of the process, um, maybe there's a genius out there somewhere who sits down, you know, in front of the the typewriter or, or computer keyboard and, and writes a beautiful first draft right off the bat. But I haven't met that person. Yeah, that would probably um, be like Alexander Hamilton or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's this whole sort of struggling and 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 self doubt is you know the self doubt is part of the process. We all have that, but frankly. Writing, writing the first draft of anything—a poem, a story, an essay, a business, a business document—in many cases, unless um, you're just going through the motions. Um, you know, that's the process of figuring out what you want to say. Um, you figure out what you want to say by by writing it down, and then you write down, you know, 15 sentences, and like, well, okay, two of those belong. The rest of them were just me spinning my wheels trying to figure out what I wanted to say. So. You know, to you and every other writer who who has that voice, as they sit down to write, you know the three three bits of information. That's kind of how it works. You're going to have that voice, and just talk back to that voice and say, "Yeah, you're right, but I'm going to keep going anyway." And then when you hit that third or fourth draft, you tie back to that thing we talked about earlier, which is when you tell you can tell yourself what I'm doing matters. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. So, I off so um. Ten years ago, I took a job in in Mexico, the country, and I went and taught down there. And then I went and taught in the UK for a little while. So these experiences now, like in my, were like very early in my teaching career, and I've done so many things since then. But I am still learning so much from those events, like eight, ten years later. So, like, I often find that I learn the biggest lessons when something is five or ten years in my past, like. In the moment, I'm just going through those experiences, um, just blindly, just kind of flailing around. But then years later, I find that I'm still learning from those experiences way later. So this year is the 20th anniversary of the Accidental Buddhist, which is very fortuitous for our conversation. And this book portrays an American in search of something that just about any of us can identify with. So what are your best memories of that journey into American Buddhism 20 years ago, and what stands out as the most meaningful lessons that are still impacting you? Um, let's see. Good question. I mean, I still remember the people, and maybe that's, you know, I started the Accidental Buddhist. I should, I should, I don't know if it's clear from the book. Um, I started the Accidental Buddhist sort of thinking I was going to be a reporter, I was going to walk around with a notebook and take notes about these people that didn't make much sense to me. You know, the, the, the short version of it is, you know, Buddhism is, is 25, 2,500 years old. It's so, at least back then, well, it still is in many cases, so wrapped up in Asian culture, you know, even in American Zendos and American retreat centers and American monasteries. Like you walk in and it's like, everything's Asian or a lot of it seems Asian. So it's Asian. It's very, very ancient. And it seemed antithetical to the, the slowing down part of Buddhism seems antithetical to 
our life. You know, 20 years ago, the Internet was just sort of bubbling up to the surface. Everybody had, you know, beepers, not cell phones yet, but beepers. Um, America was all about do it faster, do it faster, do it better. And I'm thinking, like, well, so Buddhism doesn't make any sense in America. We're, we're not Asians. Uh, it's such an old thing, and, and, and we're all about going faster. Why are people so attracted to Buddhism? And I thought I was going to go around with a notebook and sort of try to struggle, try to puzzle that out by interviewing people and then writing stories about what they told me. I didn't think I was going to so quickly and deeply and enthusiastically embrace what I found at these Zendos and retreat centers. Um, but I, but the people I met just were so warm, you know, the compassion side of Buddhism, were just so warm and so open that I, that I, I think that's a large reason why I kind of hung around and, and said, well, instead of just interviewing people, maybe I'll sit with them for three hours or maybe I'll sit with them for three days or maybe I'll do a seven day sashim. Maybe I'll, Maybe I'll try this, you know, try this out. Uh, I think the people that I connected with early on um, were the reason, you know, I saw something in them and I sort of, some sort of, a sense of peace and a sense of compassion in them that I wanted to know more about. And that's my memory. I could could name individual people, but it was just about everywhere I went, whether it was, you know, the, the, the monastery hidden in the hills of West Virginia or the the little one-room, you know, sitting retreat center in Iowa City. Um, I just just walk into the room and it's like, these are nice people. Yeah, my favorite story in that book involves the uh, Father Robert Jensen Kennedy. Yes. And um, that really stood out to me that he could be a Zen teacher and... A Jesuit priest. Right, right. Did that really blow your mind? It did, especially because I was coming from. I must still have, but I certainly, I have a, I, I have a lot of resentment towards what Catholicism taught me, um, the, the negativity of of the Catholic, the sense of original sin that we're all very bad. Um, that kind of hit me hard when I was a kid because of problems I was having at home. Um, Catholic school back in the '60s was was a rough place with a lot of a lot of angry nuns who who you know had the free reign to hit you and i got spanked a lot paddled a lot um so i came i i I, i've lived my life with a lot of resentment about you know god that was a lousy religious upbringing the opposite of what you know people should be doing is you know is what the catholic church at least uh my catholic church in my little town in pennsylvania um, it was the opposite of what they should have been doing, and it actually scarred me in, in certain ways. Okay, so that's my background. Um, and then to meet this man who's doing both, and 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 it was a very emotional experience to talk to him, not just about Buddhism, but about my feelings about the Catholic Church. Um, that was very powerful, and I'm very thankful to him all these years later. Yeah, and he's... Uh... That was such a cool story, and I, his book, um, I don't know if you had a chance to look at it. It might have been a long time, but Zen Spirit, Christian Spirit, I'm actually yes. reading that right now, and it's so wonderful to see how our cultures can speak to each other, the East and the West, and how we can live in multiple worlds and what wisdom we can glean from different traditions while still staying true to our original motivations in life. Right, and and many, many 
intelligent spiritual people, both on the Christian side and the Buddhist side, have pointed out that you know the words of Jesus and the words of the Buddha are entirely compatible. You know, it's, I, it's organized religion that I have my argument with, not not the words of Jesus. So, what are some of your future spiritual goals? What do you have on your bucket list? Yeah, um, just keep. You know, I mean, I, I I backslide. You know, I get very serious about my Buddhism. I I I meditate. You know, regularly. I I I I think. You know, I remind myself uh, regularly to remember these lessons I've learned, and then I start backsliding and forgetting, and life gets busy, and my my my, my mind gets sloppy, and you know, I'm always like, gotta get back, gotta get back to it. Um, I guess that's going to be a lifelong practice. I'm sure I'm, I'm probably be on my deathbed thinking, oh, I should have been a better Buddhist. <laughs> um, so that's you know, that's a simple. That's not a very dramatic goal. Um, you know, I'm I'm in my early 60s. I suppose someday I'll be lucky enough to retire, and maybe I can do more um, do more. You know. We, longer retreats and sessions and things. I'd like to get back to that. It's been a long time since I've done something like that. Awesome. So I'm curious about what inspires or who inspires you the most. So like maybe if you could recommend a few books for people to check out, um, writers that have inspired you, teachers that have inspired you, uh, anything. Yeah. Uh, all of the books by Thich Nhat Hanh um, are wonderful. Certainly his, his early books like Pieces Every Step. Um was an entry level for me. Um, there's also tapes. Um, you, know, you can buy tapes of him giving talks and lectures, and just his voice. Even sometimes, you know, when I he has, he has a strong uh, accent still. Thich Nhat Hanh is a Vietnamese monk, and sometimes just listening to his tapes, it's, there's a joy in his voice. Even if I couldn't quite make out what he was saying at the moment, was was somehow powerful. But Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, Bhante. Uh, Gunaratana, um, what's mindfulness is mindfulness in plain English mm-hmm. uh, is a wonderful book. Uh, there's a book uh, by Bonte Hanapola Gunaratana, um, but it's easier just to, to Google the title uh, Mindfulness in Plain English. Uh, I mention him in the book, but in my book, because he's one of the, the people I studied with, um, but his book. Mindfulness in Plain English still remains, I think, one of the best introductions to Buddhism and mindfulness uh, that I've read. We're coming to the end of our time here today, and I'm really grateful to you to spending your hour this morning with me. Um, So where can people find you online if they want to know more about your work? Uh, www.dintywmore.com. So, I mean, Dinty Moore is a name some people might remember from the grocery store, um, but my I go by Dinty W. Moore, um, and that's that's the website as well. So if you put this, put the W in there. Excellent, um, Dinty. It's been fantastic connecting with you again after our very random meeting in Columbia, Missouri, those months ago. And yes, I'm so glad. I'm so glad we ran into each other. Uh, that was just so strange, and I love the way that the world works sometimes, putting people together. And I'm excited for people to check out your work, 
and I'm very grateful to you for spending this time with me today. I'm, I'm grateful to you for spending the time with me too and asking me such nice questions. Fantastic. Thanks. The Classical Ideas Podcast is written and performed by me, Greg Soden. Original music is composed and performed by Derek Strybig. His music can be found at www.wearewarmmusic.com. Thanks for listening.